0: Celebrate what God is doing in a camp that we get to be a part of. And, And I don't want you to miss the part of that, that just even in one year, already our time and treasure investment has helped Kids to Leaders to scale, that there are 70 more children who are not going to end up incarcerated. We're going to break generational injustice in our time through the means of the gospel through the vehicle of a camp and mentorship and these types of programs. People ask me all the time, hey, how's the campaign going? And I'm like, what part of the campaign? Because, you see, when you talk about our campaign, there are so many different dimensions to it. Yes, there are renovations that are taking place on our campus, and even those are broken up into lots of little different projects. And when you think about it also, remember that 10% of what we're spending on ourselves and our construction dollars are actually also going out the door into mission. And Kids to Leaders is one part of just the missional disruptive change, the disruptive compassion that we talk about that we wanna see happen in and here through the church. All of you are probably sophisticated people who have been through lots of different types of campaigns. The first 80% of a campaign is always the easiest part, and the last 20% is the hardest part. And so we need your help in spreading the word, encouraging others. There's lots of people that have not had a chance to participate in what we think we're doing in the transformational work of renewing the promise in our generation. So we want to remind you in the fall about what God is doing in and through us. And so help us to take a step. If you haven't made a commitment to renewing the promise, a a kind of above and beyond of what our typical operating budget is, we'd love to partner with you. If you could help us to spread the word, this is also a way by which it's not just about me asking and talking about it, but us as a movement of God's people. This has been abundantly clear to me in so many different ways over the course of the last week and a half. Kelly and I just got back from what we refer to as kind of our quasi-25th anniversary empty Nestor trip, and we were in Prague and Budapest and Vienna. I know you've been praying for us as we've been been doing this and how difficult this must be. Um, One of the things they say when you go to that part of the world is when you get there, you start there, and when you start touring things, you're like, wow, another beautiful church. You go into another one, wow, another beautiful church. You go to another one, you're like, ah, another bloody church. And uh, so, so, what happens over time, though, is there was a little bit of a sadness that would set in me, and that is that there are incredible monuments to the grace of God all over Europe, but they're no longer movements. And the commitment that we're making through renewing the promise is that we're a movement of God's Spirit. We're not building a monument across the street. We're furthering the movement of God's kingdom and his mission. And that doesn't happen without us as people, amen? So, this is what we're a part of. And we're in the midst of a series. The tie in on this to what we're doing in Romans is so essential. What you see in Kids to Leaders, what we're a part of in the Renewing the Promise campaign is as we walk through this explosive letter, we're talking about the gospel. That the gospel is not an idea, it is not a building. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, that this is Paul's thesis. And everything through the letter of Romans spills out from this. And we've broken down this book into kind of four segments to help you to understand Paul's argument, and you don't get lost in the labyrinth of what he's saying. And we've said that it's kind of these four things, that it's what a mess, what a gift, what a God, what a difference. And so for the first three chapters, we talked about what a mess we've made of this world and our lives. And we talked about these three different things, one by one with each chapter. And that is is that there's a lot of unrighteousness. There's a lot of things that are not okay in this world. Two, there's a lot of self-righteousness that is going on. And three, sinful sin meaning miss the mark. There's a lot of us that are missing the mark individually, collectively. What do you do when your life isn't working? Then we realize what a gift God has given to us. That we, this fancy word, this courtroom term, justification, we do not have to justify ourselves anymore because the only true way to be right, to be okay, is for God to give it to us. And that last week we discovered that there is this gift. The gift itself is peace with God, that we can have that. That even if our life outwardly is crumbling and falling apart, that even if there is suffering all around us, there is an eternal hope that we can cling to, and that that good news is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then now we get to chapter 6. And Tim Keller says that if you read his commentary on the book of Romans, that there's a fundamental shift that happens here by the time you get to chapter 6. That in chapters 1 through 5, that what Paul is masterfully doing is describing for you what the grace of God does for you. And what happens in chapter 6 is this. Now he switches from the grace of God for you to what does the grace of God do in you? So let's read chapter 6, starting in the first verse. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you were not under law but under what? But under grace. And so may the very Spirit of God who inspired the writing and the receiving of these words, may that very same Spirit seal those words within our heart. I want to show you a picture of a place that's very sacred to Presbyterians. Does anybody know what this is? Montreat. We have some Old school Presbyterians know that this is kind of like the Mecca and the Medina of like Presbyterianism in the South. And I grew up in Texas and had never been to Montreat, North Carolina. And so I was excited. I had become a pastor and it was time for me to finally make my pilgrimage to this, the Holy Land. (laughs) And so I was going to go to a conference there with about 1,200 other pastors and we were there in this room in the auditorium. And boy, when we sang, it was amazing. And then the first speaker got up. And here we were with a bunch of Christian leaders, most of which were Presbyterian from our denomination. And this speaker started talking. And as he was talking, you could hear the congregation visibly, kind of audibly leaning in and going, hmm. And it was the only time in my life I've been in a room with Christian leaders where the speaker was talking and making a point, and you could feel the congregation move to affirmation. When I'm hearing the very same speech, and I'm like, oh no, absolutely not. That's not right. That's not okay. And it literally sent chills up my spine. I mean, granted, I had been in football stadiums where I was like, oh, no, oh, no, and you're a part of a crowd, and you can feel it, but I had never felt that in a spiritual capacity before. The reason I bring this up is that the Apostle Paul has been hearing words about what is happening in the church in Rome. Remember, he's never been there. He's writing this as a prelude to his hopefully being able to be with them in person. And what he's hearing is not making him go, mm-hmm. It's making him say, oh, no. In fact, there, there is a term. You will hear him ask a question of something that has seemed to have come up, and then it's like Paul has a British accent, and then he responds by saying, by no means. Well, we know that the Apostle Paul was a Middle Eastern Jew who was a part of the Roman Empire, so we're pretty sure he didn't talk with a British accent. And so when he says, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound, Paul, when it translates in your Bibles and mine to by no means, that is not a very good translation. What is the last thing that I say to you when I stand up and I announce the benediction at the very end? What's it, the last thing I say? Oh my gosh, some of you have been paying attention to the last almost seven years of me being here. Meganoito in Greek, and you will see him say what is by no means, by no means over again, is the opposite of may it be so. May it be so is basically just a translation of the word amen. Paul is giving the anti-amen. amen he's hearing some things about grace and their understanding of it and their attempts to incorporate grace in their lives. And he's saying, oh, no, may it not be so. And so we're in the kind of place that as we go through this, one of the things that we need to discover is that Paul needs to make some significant calibrations because they seem to really be misunderstanding grace. And that's what he does in chapter six. And what I told you before is he goes from talking about grace for you, what it does for you, to what grace does when it's inside you. And so let's see what grace does according to this passage inside you. The first thing that Paul's gonna talk about with kind of three swirling images, because this is, when I read this, I bet you kind of felt like, oh my goodness, this is kind of a circular argument, it's hard to follow. I think the easiest way to understand it is he gives you kind of three concrete images, the first of which is imagery around death and life, that grace inside of you makes you alive to God. Think of it this way. Imagine that there's a Sunday school teacher and she's standing before a class of five-year-olds and she's kind of showing off to the pastor who comes into the room. Kids, let me ask you a question. If I'm kind to animals and if I'm the kind of person that gives candy away to children and if I do every little good thing that God wants me to do, does that get me into heaven? And all the five-year-olds go, no, And she says, if I come to the church each and every day, and I volunteer, and I do all kinds of great things, I clean the church, I take care of the church, I do things for the poor, is that going to get me into heaven? And the little five-year-olds go, no. And if I sell all my possessions, if I give away all of my money to the poor, and I do all of these amazing, generous things, is that going to get me into heaven? And all the five-year-olds go, no. And so she goes, kids, So what do we have to do to get to go to heaven? And little Tommy raises his hand, and he's five years old. You got to be dead. (laughs) C.S. Lewis says, that which has not died cannot be raised to new life. Is there a part of you that needs to die to sin? The imagery of what Paul does here is the imagery of death to life, and he borrows that of baptism. Baptism, in the fullness of all the different usage of it, was about being buried with Christ, submerged with Christ, and then raised with Christ. He says it like this. He says it, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, that we too might walk in the newness of life. In other words, there is this new life that we can walk into But in order to do that, we're going to have to die to some stuff. I loved, I recently saw this cartoon that somebody had sent me, and I wanted to put it on the screen for you. There's this modern phrase here. I'm just letting you, one at a time, some of you are getting this with the grim reaper. You're dead to me. No, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. You're dead to me. This phrase, you are dead to me. I love this because I think some of you need to look at your life right now and some of the sin that is ensnared us. And you need to realize that when grace is in you, you can look at the parts of your life that are broken and sinful, and you can look at that part of your life and you can say, you're dead to me. Now, that does not mean that you're never going to ever commit Uh, an act of sin again. In fact, next week in Romans chapter 7, we're going to see that clearly. We're going to see what it's like. What does it mean to still struggle with sin even when you have the grace of God that is for you and even when grace is within you? That it doesn't mean that we're not going to struggle anymore. The the way that one commentator put it is, do you remember those moments at the end of World War II where you had... um, It was the declaration that World War II was over, but there were still little skirmishes, still some guerrilla fighters that wouldn't understand that the battle was over. That that can still be true in our lives, that the war is over, and yet there can be little skirmishes and battles that go on. You and I no longer, when grace is in us, experience the punishment of our sins, And we are the kind of people that do not have to be dominated by that sin. So, sin might still happen in the life of someone who has grace in them, but it no longer has its power over us. The war is over. And so, I love the summary statement that Paul puts it, and he puts it like this. So, you must also consider yourselves dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do you know that when grace is inside you, you are alive to God and dead to sin? So that's the first thing grace does in you. The second thing that grace does in you is this. It not only and it makes you alive to God, it frees you to be able to serve God. It frees you to be able to serve God. Everybody, have no illusion about this, is serving someone or something. And the service language and the slavery language in particular that Paul uses makes us uncomfortable. As as Americans with with our history, our understanding of slavery was very different than the slavery of the ancient world. We, We had ethnic chattel slavery that's a part of our history. The slavery of the ancient world was very different. If you did not own property, you were a slave in the Roman Empire you also had voluntary slavery, that if you fell on hard enough times, you could put yourself under the care of another, the way that they referred to that in the ancient world of slavery. I'm not glorifying that slavery and saying that that slavery was good. I'm just saying it's very different from what when we hear the word slave and service today from the way that it was back then. It's a very different understanding, and it's hard to understand what Paul means with some of his metaphors when we just have our kind of Americanized understanding of what slavery was and is. Here's how Paul puts it. We know that their old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So, in other words, he builds the connection here between if you are dead to sin and alive to God, the next thing that happens is you are no longer a slave when grace is in you. You're no longer a slave to your sin. You're no longer beholden to your sin, having to be obedient to your sin. You're now freed to serve God. I shared with you a little while ago that we went to these parts of Eastern Europe. Kelly and I had never been before. One of the places that we went was this place here. This is in New Prague. This is the magnificent, huge square that is a part of the new portion, the non-medieval portion of it, and yet there's significant history that took place in this square. In this square, one of the things that happened was that there was a series of protests in 1989. We actually have pictures of these. This is in November of 1989, 50 years after the event of the Nazis enslaving and killing hundreds of students. And yet here with this image here in 1989, this is the former playwright turned president And what happened in 1989 is what they refer to as the Velvet Revolution or the Gentle Revolution, where nearly 500,000 people, starting with a group of students, filled that square because they were under the regime of Nazi Germany and then they went under the regime of the Soviet Union And then in 1989, they became free. And Volokhov Havel, when he stood before the people and raised his hand in the square, one of the things that he did is that he pulled out his keys and he started doing this. And a half a million people followed suit. And the sound that echoed in that square Was the sound of them ringing a half a million set of keys to demonstrate that they were now free? What would it mean for you to be free from your sin and free to serve God? I think one of the things that we need to understand is as Americans, we have a misunderstanding of what freedom is. Freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want. Freedom is the ability to not have to serve one thing, but to be able to serve something else. Freedom is an entirely different construct. One of the other things that we saw while we were in Prague and then noticed in all of the other major cities is when we were on a bridge, You would see these strange padlocks that were on bridges. These are called love locks. It was a movement, I think, that particularly started in my research from what I could tell in France. And what happens, if you look at this next image here, you can see it more up close, is that people who are in a committed relationship with one another will take a lock to seal their love You see, what we know intuitively if we are thinking straight is that love is not total freedom without boundaries. Love always puts you in an amazing constraint. And it is within that constraint that you are truly free. This is what Paul is saying. When grace is in you, you're dead to sin and alive to God. When grace is in you, You no longer have to serve sin. You're now available in that loving constraint. You're free to serve God. And then, thirdly, the third thing that grace in you does is it empowers you to stand before God. It empowers you to stand before God. Now, here's what's interesting I'd never seen this before until until this year. When you look at the verbs, which I'm sure you spend a lot of time looking at verbs when you look at these things, when you go to the parts of speech and you look at the verbs of what Paul has you to do, he he talks about knowing and believing and considering that most of this passage has these types of verbs and even repeats multiple times. You ought to know this. You ought to know this. You ought to know this. You ought to believe this. You ought to consider this. That's what happens most. And then all of a sudden, he makes a shift. Those are Those are kind of contemplative kind of actions, right? And then all of a sudden he makes a shift in his language, and then he uses the language of present yourselves. The word present in the language actually means, because remember, these ancient languages are very concrete, means to cause to stand. So let's look at this passage and see it with a new understanding That was a little play on words, but none of you got it. (laughs) Do not present your members to stand up before sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to stand before God as those who have been brought from death to life and you're members of God's of instruments for righteousness. In other words, yes, when we have grace in us, we go from death to life. Yes, when we have grace in us, we go from being slaves of the wrong thing to the only kind of freedom. And that yes, when we have grace in us, now... We are able to present ourselves to God, and we no longer have to present ourselves to the world. We have that audience of one. Who do you stand before? This is a picture of a guy by the name of Ken Elzinger. When he was 26 years old, he joined kind of as a junior faculty member of the University of Virginia. And he was told on the way in, because one of his friends knew him to be an active Christian, said, look, if you care about your career, you should not wear your faith on your sleeve. You probably ought to be cautious about it. A student group had asked him to uh, come and he was a new faculty member to come and to share with that student Christian group, and he agreed to do it. And he was horrified like in his first month on the job, he saw a flyer with his name and with his face on it on a bulletin board as he was walking by in one of the buildings. And he immediately got scared, and he took the flyer and he took it down. Later that night, he could not sleep, and he prayed. And he prayed to God, and he realized that he was living his life out of fear and before others instead of before him. And he took that flyer, and the very next day, he put it back up right where he had found it. Ken Elzinga had an over 40-year career at the University of Virginia. He was Teacher of the Year multiple times, a sought-after speaker, beloved by students and faculty alike, and he has never shied away as an economist from the true source and worth of his life that is his faith you can present your life before the world or you can present your life before God. And so this is what grace does in you. And I'm guessing that for a lot of us, we have thought about grace being for us, something it does for us, but have you considered if you allow grace to enter into you what it does within you? Now, when I was in college, I distinctly remember Romans six. Do you ever have you ever done this? Was just no reason for me to do this, but I was new in my faith in college, and I opened my Bible to read it and just did the flip, 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 flip kind of thing. Have you ever done that? It's like a, it's not the pastoral recommended way of studying the Bible, but I was you know, 20 years old, and that's what I did. I I fell upon Romans 6, the passage that we read today, and specifically this verse jumped out for me. And there's parts of the Bible that I knew and were familiar with because I grew up in a church, and there were parts of the Bible about this section here, about let sin not reign in your body. Don't let it have dominion over you. You're not under law. You are under grace, and that the wages, this verse here, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And I remember this verse exploding off of the page for me. Which leads me to Taylor Swift, (laughs) who has been doing the most remarkable thing in terms of concert history over the course of the last year. I want to get some of these stats just right I wrote some of them down because I wanted to make sure I got it right. She sold 2.4 million tickets in one day. The tour is expected, the U.S. portion of the tour is expected to gross $1.4 billion. Um, And then one of the things that she did was that the U.S. tour was so successful that she gave bonuses. Everybody got paid that she worked with. She gave bonuses of $55 million to the people that worked with her. The most shocking of which is that she has 50 different drivers in order to take all of the different trucks and stuff to the different locations. She paid them very well, above union wages. And in addition to that, in one year, each of these drivers got a $100,000 bonus. And when she did this, there was a lot of, you know, articles and stories about this. And what everybody was focusing on was what all of that money did for those people. And that's, that's great. But the mistake that we make is, is that we get so fixated on what a gift does for people that what we miss in the gospel and the church is if you swim upstream a little bit is that it began with grace in somebody she did not owe with wages that money to those people it was given as a gift if a little bit of general grace in Taylor Swift can do that, imagine in the movement of the church, if we let grace in us, what do you think would happen in and for this world if God's grace made us dead to sin and alive to God? If we were free to serve God and if we presented ourselves before God and not before our fellow man, what would this world be like? It'd be more than concert tickets and music and bonuses. It'd be the greatest thing that ever happened in this world. But it begins in you and me. can't live according to the wages that way it leads to death but if grace is in us it leads to eternal living and so let's pray thank you god for the free gift that you have given to us the eternal life that springs forth and That that doesn't just mean that we get to go to heaven after we die. What that also means is that your eternal living can begin in and through us right now. Thank you, God, that our churches are not empty, especially here at Peachtree, and that we're a part of the movement of your gospel power. In spite of the world being a mess, we know that you've given us a great gift, and that's not just for us, it is in us. And so I pray, God, that the Spirit that would enter into our hearts in a way where we would not just say, may it not be so, but may it be so. And so help us to turn alive and turn away from death. Help us to serve you and to not be caught in what we think freedom ought to be. Give us a love that locks us with you And yes, help us to know and believe and consider, but now to be able to present ourselves before You with a grace that is within us that is unstoppable. And all of God's people said,